Welcome to Pop On Leadership, a conversation between two friends who are obsessed with leadership development and helping people navigate their careers within organizations and also obsessed with pop culture. I'm Virginia Martinez. And my name's Kara Kirby. Together we have over 20 years of working inside of organizations and now we both work outside with companies all over the world helping them drive their people first practices. This first season of Pop On Leadership is dedicated to a show called Ted Lasso. We're going to walk through the first 10 episodes unpacking all the leadership lessons along the way. So let's get into it. Hi everybody, we are back. We've been away this summer. And everyone has been sending us messages about the show, The Bear, because it's all about dramatic workplace dynamics and change management. And so we decided that we're going to put it on the roster for a bonus episode and just unpack each episode and the different organizational development and leadership development attributes inside of each one of them and have some fun like we always do. So it'll be similar to the way we've unpacked Ted Lasso episodes, except a little bit more abbreviated. So we're doing the series as a whole. And while we will take you through the journey of the episodes, it won't be as deep. But overall, we think you're going to really enjoy it because we loved this show and have a lot to say. And thank you to everybody who has gone on and given us five stars and left reviews. Those things help us dearly. So if you haven't yet and you are enjoying the show, please take a second on whatever platform you're using to listen to us to rate us, leave us a review. It really helps. And um, what we're going to do in the future, start reading them because they're so touching. So thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. So the bear, before we dive in, Kara, first of all, like, how was your summer? It was good and totally hectic. I think this was my first summer where I got to live through the stress of having a little bit of an older child and being worried that their brain was turning into a Nintendo and that I wasn't doing a good job as a mother. So I'll get better at that next summer. But other than that, it was great and it was beautiful. We had a good time. And please give us just a little bit about your adventures it was nothing like yours. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we were we were away from home for a total of six weeks. We spent two weeks on Cape Cod with Bill's family. And then we spent four weeks traveling through Spain and it was really, really lovely. We just sort of ate our way through that country. Um, <laughs> and the girls, I think are, you know, I've mentioned this, we sort of, we just think they're in this really sweet spot of an age where they like each other enough, enough, you know, they like us enough. We like them enough that it, it just made sense to travel. And um, no, it was Thank you for asking. It was really lovely. And I know like the irony of trying to like, uh, or, or, or questioning always like, oh, are my kids getting too much screen time? And yet here we are, we built this podcast about <laughs> us binging TV. So, I mean, do as I say, don't do as I do. Um, the bear. Everyone, by the way, we're going to have about a thousand um, spoilers throughout this episode. So just be prepared because we're going to talk about the whole thing. So if you have not watched the show, we're going to completely ruin it for you. And yes. in that in that vein, the ending of this show was one of the most gratifying endings I have. I mean, I'll have to think of an example of something that just left me with just awe. Like I was so happy by the end of this episode. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're not necessarily promoting money laundering. However, we (laughs) we do. We were really thrilled about this ending and it just felt like, oh, thank goodness, because everyone just needed a break. And it sounds like there's going to be a season two, which is exciting. So we'll see how that comes out. But okay. The reason I think people, so many people sent this to us is because it is really about change management. It, it's about different leadership styles. It, it puts it on display right out of the gate. You know, in, in, in episode one, 
in episode one, they're like, how many times did they use the word system? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever, um, have you ever worked with somebody who was, who was system obsessed before? I, I am that person. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I think I am that person too, but I what's it's interesting because it, because that word gets tossed around organizations all the time. And I think that people don't really understand what it means. Yeah. And so um, that's just something that I notice is that even, even whenever Carmi, who's the main character, he is walking in, he has a different definition of a system than his cousin, Richie, who is the guy that he is going to be like working with throughout these episodes. Yeah. And so even the definition of, of system it starts to build a conflict between those right. two. And I, and I have literally seen that happen inside of organizations before when, when two different people have no idea what that word means, because it, it holds different meanings to each other. Yeah. And even if you zoom out, I think it starts with the fact that I would say all teams and all organizations need to have a, a clear purpose that they all understand. Like, what are we driving for? And that's very different. And we talked about this in season one, that's very different than like, we exist to make profit, right? We talked about with this with Ted Lasso. But once everyone's on board and sort of facing the same direction and has that same North Star, then it's like, okay, so what are the decisions we make in service of that? What are the processes? What are the roles that exist? But it all cascades down. And so for me, this idea of a system is while people feel might feel like it's too binding or controlling, I almost feel like when you have a well-oiled machine, like you're not worrying about the stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and I say this even at home, I'm like, if we have a system, we're not worrying like, oh, where are the car keys? Where's this? Where's that? And I think that allows you to just free up your mind to be creative, to do your best work, to interact with other people in a not stressed way, right? Because you're constantly without a system, without structure, without knowing what goes where or why you're even doing something, things fall apart, and then it totally becomes interpersonal. So anyway, the, well, we could say they had different systems, but it's also fair to say, and I'll, like, I don't think there was a system. Well, maybe. Maybe. I think there, I think Richie tells us a little bit that they had a system and you can see there was a system in place. It was just messy. Right. And a Carmi, who's the main character, who is our who is our leader that's going in to really revitalize this organization. He I, I think that he very skillfully goes in and he doesn't he doesn't want to disrupt the system that was in place right off the bat. He starts to try to make tweaks. Um, but but his system is very different, has a very different definition than Richie's system. And mind you, if, if anyone has not watched this, let me, we'll give you a little context here. So here's what happened. Here's what we learned in this first episode is Carmi, short for Carmen, inherits his brother's restaurant in Chicago. It is a place that makes, it's pretty, um, pretty straightforward sandwich place. It's called The Beef. Okay. <laughs> and Carmi's background, he went to the best culinary institutions. He's worked at French Laundry. He had was like named best chef of whatever, whatever magazine at the age of 21. And here he is in this like, not they make it seem I don't know Chicago that well, but they make it seem like it's not a great neighborhood, right? This failing sandwich shop and the staff's a mess. There's the, the kitchen's gross. And the other big tension is Richard. So which they, his nickname is Cousin. That's another story. But Richard was not. Richard was not selected to 
inherit and own and run this restaurant, even though he worked side by side with Michael, Carmi's brother, for so many years. And so here's Carmi, this hotshot with very different background, coming in at a very also um, emotional time, his brother's passing, which he's not really processing, and walking into kind of a quite, I mean, it's a disastrous kitchen. Yeah, totally. And there's resentment already and people are nervous and they're sad and there's change and so that's what we sort of get dropped into i will say too like a, an overarching theme of this show that i think is really beautiful is that it 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 um it draws a parallel between a, a someone's journey through grief and mm-hmm. through and through changing this business at the same time And that's not, and that, I don't, I just thought that that was a really, really interesting juxtaposition that was throughout the show. Yeah. I mean, you and I talk about how transitions are hard, transitions are hard. And like, here you are starting a new job, taking on a new team, owning a business while in a major moment of life transition where you lose a sibling tragically. And how do you, you know, it's interesting. How do you um, process that while also like everyone looking to you to make decisions? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and Carmi's the what he's doing to cope with it is just is throwing himself into this restaurant and he's not dealing like with, with what's going on with him internally. So we also get to see his his transformation of 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 having to deal with with whatever's going on with him, like with his grief. Yeah, and it's unclear to the viewer, and I think it's because it's unclear to Carmi as well as to why he accepted this. Right. I don't mm-hmm. I think he's trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. And he's kind of doing as a way to figure it out. Like, you know, he hasn't quite figured out his why yet, but he's like, if I can just maybe get this organized, like it'll make sense to me as to why this matters. You know, he can't he can't quite articulate it yet. So it's yeah, it's all messy. The kitchen's messy. Everything's emotions, messy. Yeah. Me- emotions are messy. So, yeah, but but also right off the bat, you know, it's very easy to see this conflict amongst everyone, these different quote unquote systems, these different ways of working. There's a lot of hesitancy is a nice way to put it from the staff. I would say even resistance and outright sabotaging sometimes. But here's one thing that stuck out to me, too, is how Carmi is calling them all chef right away. Mm. And. To me, like, you know what, I'm curious your take on this, but in in the kitchen industry, like, that is a sign of respect. And so to me, I saw that as like, okay, he sees that this is like a shit show. However, he is going to convey to these folks, like, I trust you and respect you. You don't have to work hard to earn it. Just you need to sort of rise to this standard of my expectations, which, you know, can be debated. But I did see that as a sign of respect. Yeah, definitely. He was extending trust first and he was, you know, like that was the way he was going to start whittling down on everyone is he was going to gain their trust and at least show them that he respected them. Have you, I'm going to put you on the spot here on this. Have you ever either done this yourself or have you seen anyone do this skillfully where they go in and start making those connections and, and breaking down the resistance on a team? Have you ever seen that done well? I mean, sure. I think, um, well, yes and no. And I can think of some examples, but it does remind me of this quote that I also said in the first season, because I say it all the time, is harder on the structure and softer on the people. I think mm-hmm. 
although I don't always agree with Carmi's approach, what I do think, I do like he's trying to create a structure. I do like that he's trying to create a system because that actually does allow you to like build trust in different ways. Otherwise, everything feels so interpersonal. So while it might rub people the wrong way in the beginning, I think you can't lean. You actually can't lean too much on like, let me just be nice. And I think that's important. I think you should be compassionate. I think you should have a listening ear. I think you should write, be an empathetic leader. But in times of crises, <laughs> it, it that will go out the window if there is no clear sort of, and maybe it's not hierarchy, but clear decision-making process. Yeah. Right? And so while it's not, while I've seen people do this well, it doesn't mean it's great off the bat. It means there is resistance as well. It means people do push back, but eventually it clicks for them. Okay, like, I get it. I get why you did this. And I think, like, Tina is a perfect example. We'll come to her, you know, in a, in a sec. But that's someone who thrived and didn't even realize she would thrive in something like this. That was, like, her his number one antagonist in the beginning. So, yeah, I have seen people do this well, but I I, I think it's more than just extending respect. I do I do think this part of like putting something structural in place is really important as well. Yeah, definitely. And I actually want to I want to push back on that for a little bit because I and you probably agree and I just I heard this differently, but I I think that sometimes people don't realize, you know, that just to grab a quote from our girl Brené that clear is kind, right? So sometimes people think that like empathetic leadership or even servant leadership, they hear that. I I see this a lot with servant leadership. They hear just that word and and think that they need to serve everyone and think that they need to coddle everyone. But that's actually not the case. It means it means providing that structure if the system needs it. It means being clear and saying hard things to people. Right. Like like. So I think this word of kindness and being empathetic gets misconstrued whenever it comes to leadership sometimes when it, when it, because what he is doing, like he's being kind, he's being respectful, but he's not, he is not coddling any of these people. A little bit Richie. He does coddle Richie throughout the show, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And that, and that is totally fair. I think you can be empathetic and direct and clear. And that is really important. People need that for psychological safety. I guess what I'm saying is there are times where you go in, like if we co- if we compare this to Ted Lasso, right? There are times where you go in and you do a little bit of a listening tour and you solicit people's thoughts. And look, Carmi could have gone in there and been like, so everybody, what's, what's your- working? <laughs> what's working? What's not working? But like he still has to open that restaurant at noon and create sandwiches and pay bills. And so, you know, it reminds me of like this question I kept asking myself throughout this is like, when is that command and control style of leadership? Is it ever allowed? Is it really required? And to me, like, as much as I talk about being purpose-led people first, and I truly believe that I do think you can also do that and be command and control in moments of crises. This was not a consensus building moment. And maybe that sounds maybe that sounds harsh, right? Like someone had to sort of that's the thing. They're all friends. Mm-hmm. And so there was no I think there was a lack of clarity because of that. Right. What do we talk about those dramatic cultures that everyone is like trying to be um, liked and likable? Yeah. 
But what happens is there's a lot of indecision. Decisions get made slowly. And then it becomes a very passive aggressive culture right behind the scenes. And this was well beyond that because I think they also were like detached. They weren't even, they were detached from the results. Yep. They lost hope, you know, and I mean, part of that has to do with Michael, right? They lost, they like loved him that, yeah. you know, that's a really great example because yeah. that's a, that's the culture he created. Everyone loved him. He was so endearing. He was so charismatic, but yeah. nobody was telling him the truth. Right. And it sounds like vice versa as well. He wasn't really kind yeah. of, because we figured that out throughout the, all the episodes of how much he hid about their financial situation. No one can make sense of those, the accounting, right? Like none of it made sense. So he, he held back a lot of the bad news as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Episode two, which is called hands. So Can I talk about what that means, though, in the restaurant business? Okay, so there's this moment where hands is a, um, maybe not a command, but a directive that you shout out when the dish is ready and you need someone to come pick it up from the station to take it to the table. So you shout hands. So in very well-oiled machine restaurants, someone will come grab it, you know, make sure it's finally like clean, presentable and takes it to the table. So this notion of, okay, I've done my part in this sort of assembly line moment hands it's ready to be handed off it's like a nice theme here of like who is doing what is there (laughs) is everyone pitching in right yeah so anyway go ahead so carby has introduced some of these systems he's introduced people calling each other chef and so he's starting to whittle whittle away and create a system inside of this restaurant but there's still a lot of resistance i mean it is still a complete shit show. So uh, I think that some of the things that we're going to talk about on this one is, well, I think one of the things I really want to hone in on, which I think is important, especially in the environment that we see people in right now, where, where a lot of people are getting burnt out from their work is that we see that happening with Carmi as well. So not only has Carmi lost his brother in a very traumatic way, and he's dealing with grief or not so much dealing with it, but he also got completely burnt out on his job. So we get this glimpse into how abused he was inside of this restaurant and how horribly this chef was treating everybody that was there and making everyone feel insignificant. So there's this theme of being able to see that like, Carmi had a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like he had an he had an attachment to the to his abuser. And I I don't know. I think that I think especially if you're in a zone where you've been really burnt out from your employer, you almost get addicted to that hustle culture and like and and trying to meet the needs of somebody, even if they're irrational. And it, it you, I mean, you, you see this in Carmi, he has to like unravel his emotions around it. And, and it's, a, it's a really good example of what happens inside of human beings when they, when they have to, when they have to, you know, go through burnout as well. I think for Carmi as well, he has yet to figure out how to feel proud of himself. You know, again, yeah. we learn later on that the thing that drove him to leave home and get these degrees and work in these amazing restaurants in like New York and San Francisco away from Chicago was that he wanted to just like prove to his brother that he was capable of it. And it was this like strange, not that strange, but I was gonna say this very um, driven competitiveness 
that eventually led to him being okay in these abusive environments because like he just was like so focused on what's next what's next i can be better i can be better and seeking validation from all these external sources magazines head chefs customers clients but not figuring out how to do it within himself that i think gets you in that loop that you don't know how to break it Mm -hmm. right because when you never know like what's considered good enough right and we see this actually then if he his his perfectionism often perfectionism is rooted in this lack of confidence Right. And then we see it sort of he projects that a little bit on Sydney as well, Mm -hmm. who's also a perfectionist. But you see kind of how harm begets harm when you work when you have a bunch of perfectionists working together. (laughs) Yeah. Which we've all experienced before. I'm the most perfect person out of all these perfect people. Yeah, it's yeah. And it's, you know, people feel threatened when other people have ideas. And I know you, you know, in this episode as well, Sydney brings up that book full of ideas. And I know you had a thought about this as well, right? Because it's a very interesting moment about. Oh, I love that moment. Yeah. So Sydney has like Sydney, by the way, um, for those who haven't watched this is a young aspiring chef who also has had her own turmoil, started her own catering business, it didn't take off, is offered to work for free, but then eventually got on payroll at this restaurant because she admires Carmi so much. And now here she is, right? This this chain, and she's now trying to seek his approval. And so she's been taking notes and has like a notebook full of ideas, both around recipes and business decisions, right? And so I'll, I'll tee it up for you because I know you want to talk about it. But then she brings this notebook to Carmi. And what does he do? Well, I, I that scene resonated with me so much because I think that in my life, this has been a lesson that I've had to learn because I'm such an idea person. Right. And, and I can, and I would over, oh my gosh, in my youth, I would just overwhelm people because I would get these like sporadic ideas because that's how my brain works. And I would like go into my boss's office and be like, oh my gosh, let me tell you about this idea. And I, when I was developing a lot of leadership content, I came across this passage that said, you know, the art of influence is timing. So you can have the best idea in the world, but if you bring it to somebody, whenever they are stressed or when the time isn't right, they're not, they're not going to be receptive to it. So that I don't, whatever happened that day, it clicked in my mind that like, that's what I had to, like, my ideas are fine, but I had to get better at timing. I don't think Mm -hmm. I perfected it, but, but that was, and so when I saw Sydney do that, I was like, that's. She, she got so excited about her idea and what her plans were that she didn't take Carmi into consideration. So she comes into his office. If you haven't watched the show and I mean, things are on fire. Like they are in the restaurant, like literally on fire, literally on fire. Yeah. And, and she starts telling Carmi about all these ideas that she has for the food and how to make the restaurant better. And her ideas are actually brilliant and they're wonderful, but it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right timing. Yeah. And it it was just, it was just a great example of like how, how artful you have to be whenever you're trying to influence 
Um, and unfortunately, right? Like it shouldn't yeah. probably be this way, but we do have to be artful in when we're trying to influence and the timing that we're presenting ideas. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if anyone's familiar with five dynamics. It's this assessment you can take about where you get energy. It's not necessarily about what you're good at or bad at, but where you get energy. And this reminds me of the explorer type where they get a lot of energy exploring a bunch of ideas. Now that's great. And you need someone like that on every team, but they can also frustrate those who are, get a lot of energy from execution. And again, it's not that you are good or bad at things, but different places in a project timeline require you to do different things, right? So sometimes it's the right moment to explore new ideas and sometimes you got to execute. And for for those who who are familiar with design thinking or practice it, you know, we talk about this as like there are times to diverge, right? Open yourself up, seek out inspiration, brainstorm, generate and then there are times that converge, sort of narrow down, make some decisions, test some things out. And so one thing I often say, because I have one, I'm also infamous for throwing out ideas when we need to be making, <laughs> when we need to be making decisions. So I, I'll name it. I'm like, I know this is not a brainstorm moment, but if there is, I have a couple ideas we can bring up, but I know right now we're making a decision. So be aware of that. But you can also use that language when you talk to your team. You're like, let's find a time Let's find a time to hear your ideas and solicit other ideas. But right now, we really we're in a moment of convergence. We need to narrow down. We need to make decisions. We are in execute mode. And I think if you can sort of incorporate language like that, it no longer stops being about the person, the person's ideas or your leadership style, but what is needed right now from yes. the project or business. And so the mindset that everyone, whether it comes easily or not, but the mindset that everyone kind of needs to be in with you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so one of the things I do with another assessment is I'll have teams write it out. And I'm like, you know, right now you need to talk about the return on investment. Right now you need to talk about the plan. Right now you need to talk about how people are going to be positively affected. And you need to spend time talking about innovation. Because what happens is that a leader usually hires people that are very similar to them. Yeah. So if they're a planner, they're going to hire a bunch of planners. And then there's no innovation that's on that team. And it's fine. I mean, try to work on that. If you're doing it, like recognize that behavior and make sure you get different thinking on your team. But even if you don't, if you've fallen into that trap, if you can just intentionally, just like Virginia said, make like build a language, build a time so that you are incorporating every single piece into that project. It'll go a long way and you won't just kind of like get stuck into this rut where you're just checking boxes to check boxes. Or on the other side of it, you're just spending all of your time innovating and talking about ideas and nothing gets done. Like it's the combination of all of those things that makes a really healthy team. This is, I, I couldn't have asked for a better segue into episode three, which is called Brigade, which is <laughs> named after the French Brigade style of how certain restaurants, some high-end restaurants are run, where basically a place for everything and everything in its place, and also a role for everyone and everyone doing their role, and there's a clear chain of command. And speaking to your point about choosing leaders in your style, Carmi chose Sydney. But this is also, it's kind of, well, yes, he chose her because she's most like him given the other <laughs> options. But it was interesting because Sydney also, like she herself didn't feel she was ready. She didn't think she had the respect of the team. Like she had pretty good questions and reasons to be hesitant. And I, I think his response was great in that like one, he he's like, I believe in you. And then he says, let's try. Yes. Hell yes. Let's 
try. I, gosh, that seems like so simple, but like more people should be like, let's just try it in a sincere way, not in a like uh, condescending sort of this is the way it is, take it or leave it. But this of like, what's the worst that can happen? Let's try. I got you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, my biggest passion in life is on people who are reluctant to lead. Like I, I love to research it. I love to talk people into it, especially from a, from like a women's standpoint, I will talk to women all the time that are literally like leading their entire communities, but don't think they could be a leader inside their organization. And it, and I, I just cannot, I can't understand Right. I mean, there's a lot of reasons behind it. I do talks on it and write papers and all the things on this topic. But one of my suggestions for organizations is always to to do the let's try, like acknowledge the fact that you have reluctant leaders and let them lead anyways. Like they like realize that they they think that there's all this risk that like you know there's interpersonal risk that they're that they're weird about people feeling like they're going to be the person telling them what to do or they're scared that to be responsible for a group of people like there is there is risk that is in people's head and guess what if they don't have that risk and that fear you're going to have a whole another set of problems on your hands because <laughs> why what's the alternative to that. The alternative is narcissism, right? <laughs> I mean, it, right. it's it's not total narcissism, but but research right. has shown that a large population of people that are like, put me in leadership. I want to put, I want to, you know, like I've got this like magnanimous yeah. like thing that I want to tell people what to do. Like that's like I mean, I'm not over here telling people you're a narcissist or not, but I will tell you that the research just show that there's a connection there. Um, it's not you research. So like, why not instead say, let's try to these group of people and which, and by the way, it's like 60% of the population, like this bullshit that's in our head that like only the people that put their hand up in the air, the people who should be leading teams is completely flawed. Right. Well, Well, you know, there's also something like whether you want to call it, my friend calls it global thinking or 360 thinking or systems thinking, but this idea that you are part of a system and right. There's, there's a, you can both be, we're not saying that like, you're either like completely lacking confidence and like, Oh, I don't know if I can be a leader. And then on the other end is like, make me the leader. There's a happy medium where like, you understand what you're good at and also the places you might see resistance and also the places that you are still working on. And that's okay. You can still have confidence in that place because I think it's more about understanding yourself and how you fit in with the system that is the right level. So all that to say, like, it's not binary. You're not either like so worried about yourself and have no confidence or overly confident. Like, sure. You can still be learning things and not an expert in everything and still be confident that you can step into a leadership role. Absolutely. And and I th- and I think that that's a beautiful point as well, is that like that's another part of the reluctance is that people think that they have to be so ready to be able to like guide a team. And, and in reality, like that's probably the best leadership behavior you want to see is because then you're not you don't think that you're the expert and you're the hero telling people what to do because that's not what teams need. They they just they need connectors and they need people who know how to guide a conversation and know how to guide projects. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So, anyways, I love that part where Carmi just tells her, 
let's try, let's do it anyways. And he lets her experience it. And I think that more, I think that more organizations could find opportunities to do that inside of their systems. And there's something here too, going back to this notion of like, whether it's the brigade or this um, chain of command or this structure and system he's trying to put in place that ultimately allows, he's not necessarily saying you have to do it like me, but if you follow this process, once we had agreed on this process, you get to be as creative and innovative within it as you'd like. And we see a little bit of this once everyone's not putting out fires and like your brain is working on execution mode and like sort of in survival mode, like you can't be creative in that place. So, and I think about this with Marcus who starts to light up, like once things are like becoming a little bit more organized, all of a sudden he has the mental and emotional bandwidth to be like, hold on a second. I'm now inspired by these different cookbooks. I'm inspired by these different chefs. Like, I think I could do this. And it reminded me of um, this story, like, you know, early on in my career, I worked for the Boston Consulting Group, leading campus recruiting for a couple of different regions. And everyone was like, oh, that must be so boring because it's like rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Like, it must not have been really creative. And they were comparing it very directly to like when I worked at IDEO and recruiting and let me tell you, like, IDEO eventually got there and has processes in place now, whatever. But when I joined, it did not. So here's the difference that I always say is like, yes, BCG was a well-oiled machine, but I actually had a lot of opportunity to be creative there. I did some of my most creative thinking around campus recruiting plans because I didn't have to sweat Interesting. the, the small shit. Like, it would just, it just worked. Everything worked. Like, I knew. So it actually wasn't constraining at all. It was very freeing because there was a process in place allowing me to think creatively about new things. Whereas I think when you're lack structure, somehow people think like, oh, that's when you have the most creative thinking. No. No. Right. Exactly. So anyway, and I and so I thought about that and I we see it in Marcus, which we both we both love. Love Marcus. Oh is he our Danny Rojas of this show? He's different, but yeah, he might be the sort of one we fall in love with. Yeah. But I think um, seeing him and this happens to a couple of other folks too. Tina as an example as well. And all of them eventually like they start believing in themselves in new ways. So that, yeah, that's lovely. I mean, we start seeing that here. Back to what you were talking about, where you were able to be your most creative. You know, I, I'm reading this. I'm reading this book about change management because I'm a nerd, and that's what I do in my spare time. And it's actually John Cotter's latest book, and he's and he's talking about how you know, like organizations are all trying to achieve like innovation, which is a social structure, by the way. And but if you're running an organization to your point where things are on fire, it means that everybody's brains are in fight or flight and creativity and innovation do not exist there. Right. So if you're in the survival mode, you're not going to get any innovation. However, if you switch it and you pay attention to your systems and you pay attention to what's going on around you and you allow people to feel safe and you allow people to be in this in this thrive mode, it means you have activated brains all around you. So that's what that's one of the things that Carmi yeah. was doing was that he was providing that 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 safety and that confidence inside of that fire which a lot, I loved that scene where Marcus was like, I've never had, I've never had the space to be creative before. And then when he gets the space, 
you know, he came from like working at McDonald's and these, these, these different environments where it was just, it was so structured and like, nobody cared about what he thought. And then he had a little bit of space to be creative and he starts just making all these brilliant creations. Mm -hmm. And so like just the whole symbol of if you, if you let people be in a space of safety, allow their brains to thrive, you never know what's going to come out of them. Yeah. We can talk about Marcus as well, because I think maybe he took it a little too far where he forgot about, he forgot his, which I think is also a testament that he, he found something he was super passionate about and believed in himself. And that's good. And I think when you are in a job, when you have your day job, when his day job was like, make the chocolate cake, don't worry about donut, don't donuts are your side project. That's also really interesting when you find yourself in that moment at work where you're like, oh, I'm so tired of making chocolate cake. I just want to make these donuts. However, I am, I, my contribution to this team and system is the chocolate cake. I got to figure out a way. And that's, that's to your point again about that timing, right? Of when are you introducing new ideas? When is it a time to diverge or converge? But um, we love, we love his story. It's just so great. And also a testament of like what you were saying, like when people have a little bit of space, and trust in themselves, what can come out of it. There's one more part of yeah. this episode before we get into episode four, which is called dogs. <laughs> and so, so Carmi gives Sydney the freedom or he says, let's try. And then he basically leaves and the whole kitchen yeah. erupts and everyone gets mad at her. It's a complete cluster. And so then there's this scene that, that is at the end of it where I, that I think is really important where she's sitting down and she's like, you left me, you stranded me. And Carmi knows that he did it on purpose. Um, and, and then she gives him some really direct feedback. She says, you didn't listen. We need to listen to each other. And I just thought it was a really cool moment in the show because you see that Carmi's leadership, whatever he's doing, right. He's making it so people feel so people can be honest with him. Yeah. There's also something really interesting in that conversation as well, where she does pull him aside and give him some tough feedback. And I, you wonder, like, how easy or hard was that? But, you know, she's like, you let everyone act like trash and sort of kind of suggesting that, like, and yet you like made me in charge and then you left me. And he's like, well, I expect more from you. I hold you to higher standard. And it made me think of those moments that are like these compliments, but also the burden of being good at your job. Like, I think we've mm. all had those moments. Like, I mean, I haven't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. Shut up. <laughs> oh my God. But when you're the person that cares a lot and you're the person that's like really good and you're the person that can do it in one hour versus 10, what ultimately happens is like you end up getting more responsibility, which is great that you're being seen but it is tough when the rest of the team is not being held to the same standard. So I thought that was interesting as well, where it's like this kind of like compliment for her, but also a little unfair, right? Because that notion of like, you let everyone else act like trash, like hold them to a higher standard too. Yeah, definitely. Oh man, I have like, a, I have a story on this. When I was younger and I I, I had my first 360, which in my field, I've done 360s like 900,000 times. So <laughs> <laughs> this was my, this was my first, this was my first one. And my boss at the time was a guy that I really, really respected. I mean, we're still friends to this day and I love him, but he had wrote this comment in there that I didn't, 
I like, I wanted to stay with the status quo, even though like he knew that like, I, I, I didn't need to, like, he was like, you hold yourself back because you don't want to go ahead of the crowd. And it hit, and it, it hit me so hard, but later on in, in life, I learned that that's a really normal thing. Like our egos do not want to stand out from the crowd. Like we want to stay in the status quo because it's more comfortable because it's the same thing. Like you'll see like kids that'll be in class. And if they're the one that's making all the A's right, while the rest of the class is making B's, like they get ridiculed. Like, so they, so they don't want that experience. And it trickles into work as well, where people don't want to stand out to the point where like, like they're getting noticed. So they'll, so they'll hold themselves back. And he just, he like straight up called me out and I'll, and I'll never forget it. Cause I was like, I'm totally doing that. Like, I don't, I don't want to look like the goody two shoes and the girl that's going like, that's like making everyone look bad. Like, I don't want that. So I was, I was letting myself stay status quo and he like, I don't know. He just like saw it and called me out and it really did change my life. I was like, well, okay, I need to acknowledge that about myself and not be that person anymore. Fascinating. Cause I was the goody two shoes that wanted to be the teacher's pet that didn't want to get made fun of it, but like so desperately needed the validation of others and seeking approval that I in being so competitive with myself, like people disliked me, right? Because they were like, oh, you're just trying to stick out. You're trying to do more. And I've gotten feedback. I've gotten the opposite feedback to do less, <laughs> to work less hard, to lower my standards because other people are not going to work. Like I ne- that I needed to adjust myself to the status quo. So funny. But um, I think for me, the lesson there was like sort of being, figuring out how I could proud of myself and not have to seek that Mm -hmm. people all the time um anyway okay episode four dogs where um basically (laughs) it's a longer more convoluted thing they owe someone a lot of money so now they're sort of on the hook to do all these things for free so they gotta show up to a kid's party and like serve hot dogs but (laughs) and then and richie and then richie's dumbass puts xanax and everybody's juice or no, like, he puts his, he puts, yeah, he puts his annex too close to the juice. So then it like gets kids all the dump kids. it in or something uh, like that. Terrible. It's okay. There's not much uh, org development going on in this episode, but the one thing I'll just note before we sort of move on to the next one is that again, slowly these different characters and team members are coming around, right? There, again, there was a lot of resistance to the change, even sabotaging it. The first we see Marcus having that spark of creativity over the donuts. And then we see Tina in this episode, try the mashed potatoes. And I feel like that unlocked it for her. And there's, it just reminded me, and I won't talk too much about this, but sometimes you can't talk your way through change. You have people's beliefs will change. So their mindsets and beliefs will change when their experiences change. And so here Tina's experiencing the most delicious mashed potatoes she's ever tried. And she's like, oh, you know what? Maybe there is something to this system. (laughs) And so sometimes you can't just talk your way through it. People have to really experience it. And I actually think that that's a really meaty topic is that the examples are more important than talking about it, actually. And and it, it happens on the positive front. So if you have a big change and people are able to see like the little pieces of evidence, like 
sprinkled around like Hansel and Gretel, right? Like <laughs> that, like, oh, this is working. There is positive impact. Like this is going to be, um, this is going to provide for a better future. If they're able to see that, that, that will make change yeah. happen faster and then the opposite of it, which we see 24 seven is when people need to do a big change. Um, you know, I work with, you know, we both do like we work with leadership development all the time and people want us, it's like, people want to say they want like a leadership culture that's supportive of employees, but then they'll promote the person that is the biggest asshole to their teams. Yeah. Right. So it's like those sprinkles, there's an, there, there's an incongruence there. And that, that, that is just like setting your change efforts on fire. If there's not congruence. Yeah. There's a couple of things here. There's like actions speak louder than words, of course, people, but there's also with change management, the, I mean, I'm, this is going to be a very high level piece of advice, but one, like, I think shared language is really important. So these things like chef and systems and the brigade and like, that is important. You need everyone singing from the same song sheet right otherwise people are just like debating over things even though or talking past each other even though they're trying to say the same thing so shared language is really really important and sometimes this comes up as like writing new values or new policies but it has to get to a point where everyone sort of knows it ins and out in and out rather you know that they don't have to like look it up somewhere to memorize it and then so that's part of it the other one is like clear and easy to understand processes again that you don't necessarily memorize but like you know who does what and where you go, where to get your information. And then I would say another part, not the last part, but another really important part to make change management successful is this storytelling. So where you have the stories of the yummy mashed potatoes and Marcus's Mm -hmm. donuts, you need to go back. I mean, they all live in, they all work in the same kitchen. So they see it, they're witnessing it. But in big organizations, the version is, hey, everybody, we want to surface the story we heard from one of our departments. So-and-so in this unit came up with this great idea and we want to celebrate that. So you have to storytell back because not everyone is working under one roof or one kitchen or what have you, especially now that we're hybrid or remote. Storytelling was always important to change management and change in general, but um, even more so like, so make sure if you're listening and if you're a leader, make sure you're building that into your process. Again, um, I think the, oh, the one, the next episode is called Sheridan, which we learned was the name of Sydney's catering business that, that did not succeed. We go a little deeper into Sydney here. In this one, for me, I feel like um, the gas line goes out, the power goes out, and Carmi's not there, right? So the person that you would look to for decisions is not there. So they have to figure it out together. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me of that statement, innovation loves constraints, where like, you're, you've, you've, you got it, like, they had what, like, five minutes before opening, and so they created like a barbecue pit outside, or like a grill, rather. I just thought that was, they all came together, which was also a sign that even without Carmi there, there's this like mutual respect, mm-hmm. that even though there was that chain of command, they didn't need it, you know, like they all sort of fell into their roles and did it. So I thought that was a really great thing. Like also a sign that things are changing. And my favorite scene that's that in this episode, and I'm actually going to post this clip on our socials, but it is, it's when, when his friend, where he's talking to Richie and he's like, I want to work here. And he's like, (laughs) oh my gosh, that guy, what is that guy's name again? I always forget that guy's name. (laughs) his name too but he's such a funny character but he's like I have heart and I'm good on a keyboard and I'm a hard worker and I've got a great vibe 
<laughs> a great vibe. Yeah, this is what I'm bringing. That's right. That's right. And, Rich, and Richie's like, he's like, we don't have a good vibe. And he's like, yes, I do. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. There's such an interesting cast of characters. Yeah, there's like this guy whose name I'm forgetting who like hangs out, really desperately wants to work there. But they only like he's fixing the soda machine and the toilet and the fridge. He's like their handyman. And um, but he I think what he likes is like likes seeing their camaraderie. He wants to be part of the team. It's mm. it's cute. I know. He's so <laughs> I will say that another thing that I think is interesting that we're starting to see progress is that Carmi is getting a handle on all these other different aspects of the restaurant, right? And then everything blows up in his face, but he's getting a handle on the cleanliness, the system, people respecting. He's even starting to whittle down Tina a little bit, who was a big obstacle, but he's, I, he's not, he's not putting his foot down whenever it comes to his cousin. So when it comes to Richie, he's like watching Richie still have like, you know, he's like fighting with his friend after that interview scene. And he's like talking to everybody and telling all these stories. Like he's being obnoxious in the restaurant and, and Carmi's being really gentle with him, which I think is, it's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, a couple of things on that one. We also know that Carmi starts going to um, support groups. Yeah. He goes to Al-Anon. And starts talking about processing his grief, which I th- w- right we're made to believe through the, the the magic of TV that this is these things obviously are are helping each other as he processes that part of his life. He kind of can show up differently to work. He's processing grief, but he's and he's also processing um, having a family member that um, that was an addict. Yeah, which absolutely, which is which is which is difficult, and and those two things are happening at the same time. Yeah, so yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And then with with Richie, who we find out they use the word cousin, but they're not even related, which is also hilarious. But they call each other cousin, cousin, because that's what Michael and Richie used to do, because that's how close they were. I think it goes back to Richie feeling a certain way that he wasn't asked Mm -hmm. or left or left the um, restaurant in his will or what have you. And that even though Carmi feels like a sense of responsibility because it was given to him, I think he also questions like why he still doesn't know why. Right? We only find out until like the last episode. So at this point, he's still like, "There's resentment." There, yeah, but the, the, yes, yes. I guess what I'm saying also is like I think that's why he's soft with Richie sometimes, even though Richie is so annoying. In that, I think he empathizes. Like we both had a major loss. You were so you were closer to my brother than me in some ways and i also have no idea like you're 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 wondering why i got the restaurant i'm also wondering why i got the Mm -hmm. restaurant and there's moments like that too where you know think about okay we talk about um being on a team and and being promoted there are also moments where you know you go from being teammates with someone to being someone's boss Mm -hmm. and that's a very different dynamic it's hard it's hard to shift yeah, can you imagine if it's like family? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, the the episode six I love because I actually ended up going down a little Wikipedia rabbit hole after this episode <laughs> about series or series or how do you put it? Uh, the goddess of agriculture. And so when mm-hmm. they built the Chicago Stock Exchange, the architect that designed it put this goddess up top series, I believe, C E. 
A-R-E-S, who's the goddess of agriculture because so much of um, Chicago and, and that that part of the country was driven by that. But anyway, I won't spoil the joke. But what, what happens is how we learn about all this is that Richie is going on and on and on about this story. Or we see a... Oh, like a it's so sad. On and on and on about this story about he was up all night drinking with Michael when Michael was alive. And they end up at a bar like at 4.30 in the morning and Bill Murray comes in. And he loves the story. And you can tell that he's told this story so many times. And now he tells it on a date. And like his date like doesn't care. In fact, like the only thing she takes away is... So you were at a bar at 4.30 in the morning after being out all night, you know, like casting a little judgment. And it's funny because, like, I think Richie's also going through his trans- – he's going through a divorce. He misses his kid. Um, he's also recognizing, processing the loss of Michael. And it's said early on in one of the episodes, like, I got a divorce because I had to, like, spend so much time putting together this family or someone else's family that I neglected my own. So I think he's processing all of that, but there's something about this Bill Murray story that like makes you sad. Cause he's like living mm-hmm. in the past, right? That's like the takeaway is like, man, this guy's got to move on. Yeah, definitely. He, he is so stuck in the past and it's like, he keeps getting the hit after hit that it's time for him to make a major change in his life. And he's just, he's still clinging on to it. Like that, that I think that that is what Richie's character embodies is someone that says, I do not, you know, identity changes are the biggest change that we can have inside of our adult life. Right. And, and there, there's actually people say, say that like it, it, it takes an event. Like a lot of times parenthood is a big event that causes people to go over that threshold. But, but Richie hasn't got, he like, he, he's like going right up to the edge, but he doesn't want to go over to the threshold. And then there, and it's like these little things that are happening, but he, he's not there. He wants to stay in the past and like keep his identity, that fun, like joking guy that still acts like a teenage dude. Yeah. What's interesting though, is the folks around him you are seeing are shifting. Mm-hmm. Right? They have a newfound level of confidence. They are stepping into, they're, they're still versions of themselves, but they're stepping into the future. They have accepted a lot of Carmi's ways and Sydney's ways. Richard is still sort of holding firm. And I think we see this when Tina's at her station trying to get her job done and Richie is not taking it seriously and just distracting her and distracting her and distracting her. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's the way it used to be for a long time, right? Like, oh, you could only imagine how messy it was. Right. And that they weren't prioritizing work and that they didn't care. Like, so what? There was a sort of a so what attitude, but coming from a place because they were all friends. And Richie's distracting Tina. And then there's like this freak out. And Tina tells him like, because he, when you see other people change around you and you're the last one holding Mm -hmm. on to the past, it feels like a personal attack. Right? Well, what's wrong with the old way? Yes. What's wrong? And then, and so Tina tells him how much better it's been for her, like that she feels really alive and good. And and this will happen like, you know, I'm not a psychologist, you know, but when other people around you are growing and developing or putting up boundaries and you are not, it's very easy for that person to take it as a personal attack mm-hmm. because they needed you to also have no boundaries. They also needed you to be at a lower place, not a higher standard for them to feel good about themselves. And it's, 
like, and it's everyone's journey, right? So anyway, that that's like what's interesting happening here. We sort of get a little bit more into Richie and he's like lovable but you also hate him at the same time yeah he's got like you know that this is not going to be successful unless he comes along and it has to be his decision like nothing nothing anybody's going to tell him anything that he's going to see like he has got it and that i mean that in itself again is like a symbol of human nature like when you see people that are around you and it is glaring that they need to step over that threshold. There's nothing you can do about it. And you, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a callback to you hear that there's another theme of this whenever Carmi goes to his Al-Anon meetings with a woman's giving the speech about her husband and how you know she had to, you know, that's a big part of it is is realizing that you're powerless over somebody else's behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, like what whether it's you know, with these really hard issues in life, if you have people who are struggling or if it's just like a glaring thing where people are getting in their own way like there's nothing you as a leader or anybody else can do like when it comes to shifting behavior like someone has to do it on their own and Mm -hmm. that's a hard lesson to internalize no for sure and I think he's again Richie dealing with his own version of grief almost feels like he's betraying Michael the old boss and we see Mm -hmm. that right there's also some interesting stuff that happens in this episode. I think Sydney with her short ribs and risotto recipe that she's been working on. And and we've also already seen this. Like, right? She brought her book of ideas at the wrong moment. Here again, Sydney, very determined, uh, very driven, but also very impatient and a perfectionist, puts the plate in front of Carmi to try it. I, I actually am on Sydney's side on this. Like... I, and, and we need to unpack this because I think that, that like Carmi did not need of the level, like the five star level inside of this restaurant. If it was 4.9 stars, that was okay. And he just like ruined her confidence. Like I thought that that was so unnecessary of him. And it, it's also something that I see happen with with leaders all the time. Like they'll have people on their team that aren't performing at their pristine level when that's not even what the customer needs and they end up destroying people's confidence. Yeah. I do think the timing was a little bit better, but he was still, as we know, kind of always in execution mode. But um, he was clearly threatened because he thought it was You think he was threatened? I I think... I didn't think he was threatened. Oh, interesting. Well, I just think he he thought it was really good and maybe there was this moment of like, shit, I should be making yummy short ribs and risotto and instead I'm making. No. Okay. Anyways, I see that. I see that. I I think that he was putting his trauma from his boss. Oh, absolutely. Into her. So like, he just wasn't, he wasn't thinking and he was like, it's not absolutely perfect. So try again. Like he was like, he was just doing the whole thing that he, that behavior that he had learned. I completely agree. So agree to disagree that maybe he was threatened or not, but I do think that he was then managing her the way he had been managed. Yes. Without realizing that there's a different way to do it. And coming back to the sort of perfectionism and what we said earlier about clarity as kindness, he gives her really unhelpful feedback. Like it's not ready yet. Mm-hmm. it's not ready yet and how many times have we've gotten like Ugh. useless feedback like this later on in a couple episodes down the line he's like it needed more acid like, and he that's, that's all he needed to do he knew the answer he knew the answer so that's why i think there might be something like maybe it's not threatened but still sort of 
wanting to remind people that he's he's the expert he's the expert and they should depend on him maybe okay all right i don't know maybe something in there but you're right you're right it wasn't like a complete i think he was maybe just too distracted and stressed but um yeah i don't know i i thought that that i thought he was just being nitpicky for no reason yeah well yeah i i that's I mean, there was reason. There was a reason, right? Like, I think that I think especially when you're leading a team, you're always battling of like you you look at things to the perspective of is that up to what I would have done, especially if you're leading a team where people are conducting an activity that you used to do and you got really good at, right? Then 100%. if it's and, and I always have to remind like leaders that I work with that it's like, I'm like, it took you five to 10 years to Absolutely. get to this, to get to this level. Like it is, it's impossible for someone to meet those expectations unless they've been in that job for 10 years. And, it, and it's not about satisfying you. It's about satisfying the customer. So what percentage of you is still, is still exceeding the expectations of a customer? That's right. your, that's your point. That's your yeah. point that you're getting to. It doesn't have to be this utmost perfection. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I think, again, it's a lot of how he was sort of raised in the restaurant business. Right. And so those behaviors were modeled for him and he associates it with excellence and top of the line. Not necessarily yet. Is this what I would say if I really thought about this or is this what she needs? Yeah. But we also find out that Sydney didn't want to waste the risotto and just there's a customer in the restaurant, like we don't know who it is. And she's like, hey, I don't want to throw this out. Do you want to just have this risotto? Turns out to be a food critic. Now, would you say some folks were threatened? (laughs) (laughs) Because um, the, you know, anyway, Carmen's like, it's not ready. It's not ready. We're not going to put it on the menu. There's a debate. Like, do we even want to do risotto at this restaurant? Like, does it make sense, et cetera? But turns out that person was a food critic and they write a review about the, the restaurant's called The Beef, this like Chicago institution, and they acknowledge how much it's shifting and improving Mm-hmm. But they sort of say like, and the sandwiches are still what you can expect. Meanwhile, like Carmi's done so much to improve the recipe. <laughs> but the standout, the standout was this risotto. And it really, Carmi was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't, it doesn't matter. Like really, I, I still am like, did it matter to him or did it not? Because he's just like, I don't want to talk about it. Let it go. Richie was really bothered. He didn't like Sydney shining. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't see that actually her argument was like, if the restaurant gets a positive review, we all win. Mm-hmm. And he and he still couldn't see that. Right. And and that happens a lot, too, of like, how can you share wins on a team versus seeing it as like competing within? I know. I think that I think that like that. Fighting against internal competition is, I don't think we'll ever figure it out, but it's like a lifelong process of how do you get, how do you get employee? And maybe it's a U.S. thing too, because it's different and it's different other places, but how do you get employees to just stop competing with each other and look at the bigger picture? Yeah. 
It's this episode is so interesting too because I think that big picture is lost in many ways. You see throughout the season, you see these improvements. They're gelling as a team, and this episode, man, does it all fall apart because it's the episode where they install that new like machine mm-hmm. for to-go orders, and everyone's a little hesitant. Like this new piece of technology, they don't really know how to use. It's very easy to blame sydney because it was her idea that's the other thing we do like when something doesn't work we always love to blame the person whose idea it was versus like the team that didn't properly help set you know what i mean i don't know that that was another thing that came up in this but this is a chaotic episode because that machine printing anxiety that noise that printing noise like like all those receipts coming through for to-go orders the day after an amazing review so people are just like Suddenly they got, you know, more attention. <laughs> Marcus finally finishes his donut, which like Carmi loses it, loses it, loses it, throws the donut on the floor, yells at Sydney. Sydney leaves. Sydney, Sydney stabs Richie in the ass. <laughs> um, I loved how proud Richie was to get stabbed in the butt. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, this is. I didn't when watching this episode, I'm like, how is this season going to end? Because, you know, they kind of take you on this journey where things are getting better and they're gelling and then came apart. And I'm just wondering, like, I was losing hope there for a while. I was like, if they do not give me a good ending to this show after I've been on this emotional whirlwind, I'm going to lose my mind. But that I, I guess if, you know, in our, our org development org design hats. This is, I don't even know what advice I have here. I think other than like, you're going to have bad days. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Where even if you see improvements, there's going to be some variable out of your control that's going to put the entire team to a test. And unfortunately, they turned on each other. Yeah, they didn't do great. Yeah, I don't know if I would have any advice there either. But you know what? I would draw a similarity between you know, like the end of our Ted Lasso season one is that Ted Lasso still losing games. Right. Yeah. And, and like, this is the same thing. Like they lost, they lost a game that day. And, and the way that Carmi responded ended up making everything worse. Like he, well, he responded poorly because he lost his mind, but he also wasn't taking care of himself. So he wasn't sleeping. He's having panic attacks. He's not taking care of himself. He's trying to ignore everything. So I guess that would be a piece of advice is that no matter how well trained you are, how well the systems are that you're putting in place, like how much you have it, if you're not taking care of yourself as a leader, there's still a chance of everything getting set on fire. Yeah. It also reminded me of um, that leadership style that thrives on having control. Mm-hmm. So in a crisis, he wanted control of everything. He was like, I'll do the prep. I'll do this. I'll do that. Like, it was impossible. And if you are that type of leader, then what happens is you don't equip the rest of your team to mm-hmm. be able to step up. And I think here it's slightly different. The team had the capability of stepping up, but Carmi wasn't letting them. Yeah. Like they, we, the difference, like, so when we see Ted Lasso, he gets almost to that point where he's like, we can't beat this. He gets everybody together and he says, what's your ideas? Cause he stays calm and collected and is like actualized self. Right. But Carmi is not there. He's not taking care of himself. He doesn't understand his stress response. So he just like loses it and he makes the situation even worse, which you see happen a billion times inside of organizations with leaders. Yeah. And I guess if, if you're thinking about this as someone who manages teams or different organizations or units, like, 
you cannot have everyone depend on you for every single decision every time because oh, you God. will have you will have your own versions of fire drills. And if you have not set up your team to step up to the occasion, both with their knowledge, capabilities, and confidence, like there's no way. There's no way you're setting yourself up for failure, which is the thing you fear. So <laughs> it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, for sure. All right. So this season, and again, it sounds like they're going to make a season two, but season one of The Bear ends. In kind of the kookiest way possible, but um, I was like almost at this point in this show where I was like, I can't do it anymore. Like I cannot yeah. watch this, this shit show unfold. But I'm so happy I actually finished this ending because it was a beautiful ending. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look again, we do not condone money laundering and you know <laughs> nefarious we do, activities. But... We do like for you to make um television and write scripts and books about it i'm very yeah. into money laundering shows <laughs> yeah and i'm like how did like how did he hide it in the cans of tomato sauce like how did he seal the cans i like more questions than answers but we love it so this moment of relief the other thing that we didn't mention earlier richie at some point early on in the season finds an envelope that michael had left to to carmy he never opens it doesn't know what he says was going to give it to him and had second thoughts, really, again, a little sort of very early on in those sabotaging days. Eventually, he breaks down and gives him the envelope. Carmi opens it on one side. It's an index card, small index card on one side. It says, let it rip, which was the saying that his brother always had for him, like, go for it. You got it. Kind of like that instilled a bunch of confidence in him. Let it rip. And on the back side was a recipe for this spaghetti and tomato sauce, which also was up for debate in the first episode. Like, we're not making spaghetti and tomato sauce. So you kind of also think, like, had he just opened those cans in the first episode, which (laughs) then we wouldn't have a season. But, um, and he's like, why these small cans? This is such a waste. But anyway, he's like, use the small cans. They taste better. So there, Carmi, in this moment of softening, decides, you know what, I'll make my brother's spaghetti and tomato sauce recipe. And in opening the cans, finds wadded up, wrapped in saran wrap, but wadded up huge piles of cash. And and when they have like, when I say they have a wall of these cans, they have a wall. So um, it wraps up really nicely. Sydney, because Sydney, if you remember, quit on that day. Marcus had also gone away for a few days. They come back trying to make amends. And they're all on the floor, like op- like covered in tomato sauce, opening these cans. And Carmi looks at Sydney. He's like, because he, he, what we also find out, he read her book full of ideas. Oh, yeah. And he was like, okay, so family style. I forget everything. Family style with some booths. And she's like, and then she noticed, she realizes he, he read her book of ideas. And she's like, um, with chef's table, tasting menu at the chef's table or whatever. And he's like, yeah. He's like, okay. What are we going to call it? The bear. So, yeah. So it wraps up there. Uh, doesn't doesn't excuse all the bad behavior and bad management <laughs> and bad people management by any means. It does also show you, I think, how when leaders or a team are on like such insane demands, like making money or they're going to close down and people's jobs are on the line, you know, when th- people have an abundance mindset. It's very easy to be kind and generous. <laughs> but a scarcity mindset will really have you acting, you know, not great. But yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. 
Um, well, thank you to everyone who recommended this show. We really enjoyed watching it. Here's what you can expect coming up. We are going to get together and record season two of Pop on Leadership. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's going to be dedicated to season two of Ted Lasso. Our goal is to try to get it done so that we can actually do season three live episode by episode. Don't hold us to it. We're going to do our best. Um, <laughs> But that's what you can expect. And again, thank you for everyone who um, sends us texts and notes and um, direct messages via social media. Um, if you haven't already left us a review, please go do that. We love it. And thanks. Thanks, everybody. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we want to keep the conversation going. Share your leadership stories with us, whether they're dreams come true or some nightmares you want to talk through. You can visit us at poponleadership.com or over at Instagram at poponleadership. And a very special thanks to our friends and family who have supported us from the beginning and to Pam Rodriguez, who helped make this crazy dream a reality. Thank you. See you next time.